Hi, my name is Dr. Rongan Chatterjee, medical doctor, author of The Four Pillar Plan and BBC television presenter. I believe that all of us have the ability to feel better than we currently do, but getting healthy has become far too complicated. With this podcast, I aim to simplify it. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most interesting and exciting people both within as well as outside the health space to hopefully inspire you as well as empower you with simple tips that you can put into practice immediately to transform the way that you feel. I believe that when we are healthier, we are happier because when we feel better, we live more. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome onto the podcast today somebody who has got a real expertise in childhood nutrition, in childhood obesity, in child development, and someone with a very, very unique qualification. She is not only a paediatrician, she's also a nutritional therapist. Vanessa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rangan. Vanessa, you have got an incredibly specialised qualification set. You know, um, you're a medical doctor. You, know, you work in paediatrics and yep. you have done for what, about over 20 years now? Over 20 years now. Yeah, but you're also a qualified nutritional therapist. And yep. I'm not sure I know that many people who have got both of those qualifications. For people listening, um, I met Vanita, I'm going to guess now, five or six years ago. I was on my own journey to learn more skills than I got at medical school to help me with my patients. And I'd been on some courses in America. I'd got back to the UK full of enthusiasm. And I was looking for courses here. And we both ended up at the same course in London. That's right. And I remember meeting you and I think one of your friends there. Yes. And um, yeah, been very, very impressed with the work you've done that I've been watching since then. So can you tell us, Vanessa, how did you end up going from paediatrics to nutritional therapy and then back to paediatrics? Yes. Yeah, so initially I did full training in paediatrics in this country and I specialised in something called community paediatrics where we're looking at the whole child, we're looking at their development, um, we're looking at all aspects of a child's life, so education, school and we're also um, assessing children for much longer so we have about an hour with them. And I was thoroughly enjoying that. I then had my second child and unfortunately he became unwell at the age of one when I was returning to work. And so I decided to stay home and look after him. And unfortunately, while he was unwell, I also kind of put my own health issues to the side. So I didn't really look after my own health. I was focusing on him. And luckily, after three or four years, he made a full recovery. And so I decided to, uh, first of all, look at my own health, which I did and see how children's health can be affected by nutrition. And a friend of mine, as you said, had just started the course in nutritional therapy. And when I looked at her notes and when I saw that there's a lot of science behind it, I realised that this was something I wanted to delve into much deeper. And so I enrolled in the course and two years later were the best two years I ever did. And I've never looked back because the information and knowledge which I gained has just transformed my whole approach to paediatrics, to children's health, and to adult health as well. Wow, that's phenomenal. So you started off in paediatrics, looking after kids, and you know, is often a common story uh, with people I've had on the podcast so far. There's often been yeah. a personal reason, either with their own health or a family member's health. So you had to, you know, you felt as a mother, you had to take some time off and actually yes. look after your son. Um, but during that time that 
you were saying that you neglected your own health. I did, yes. And so, did you get sick because of that? I wasn't incredibly sick, but obviously I was feeling tired. I wasn't looking at my own nutrition properly, so just grabbing things when I could. And I realised that this couldn't carry on. So I, first of all, um, went back into doing some regular exercise. And then that led into eating a bit more healthy. Right. And then you wanted to go back to paediatrics, but instead of doing that, you actually went to a nutritional therapy course. Yes, that's right. So instead of being able to finish my training very quickly, I was faced with the option of doing lots of hospital on calls. And I didn't feel that I was able to commit to going back to that. So when my friend happened to show me her notes, that really just grabbed me. And that's when I'd made the decision to start. Wow. So as I say, you're very, very uniquely qualified. You've got this huge background in nutrition now, but also your uh, medical training yeah. and your paediatrics training. Yeah. So how has getting a, an understanding and a qualification in nutritional therapy helped you as a paediatrician? So I've been fortunate to be able to go back into paediatrics. And in fact, um, certain areas were looking for a community paediatrician who had an interest in nutrition, because I'm sure you are aware that childhood obesity rates are on the increase and certain areas have very high rates. And, And the area which I was going back to work in had already set up a pilot project. And it was actually a very whole child approach, which I liked. So it was based from mental health, family therapy, and they were looking at the child's resources, the family's resources, to see where and how to help them on their own terms, rather than being didactic and saying, this is what you need to eat and this is what exercise you need to do. They're going to see what can the family manage, what are the the barriers to doing it, and actually going into people's homes, going to schools, rather than just calling people to clinics. So it's a very different approach. And I was able to bring my nutritional therapy knowledge into that to say, well, hang on, these families are from diverse backgrounds. Why don't we look at their culture and why don't we look at their traditional diets? Because a lot of them have very healthy traditional diets, but they'd moved away from it, partly because they'd moved to this country and they may have a lack of resources or just partly a lack of knowledge. And so by supporting them to go back to their traditional diets, which on the whole were eating much more vegetables and foods which they were used to and enjoyed. They actually benefited from that. And the other way that nutritional therapy helps is that you're looking at the root cause of what's going on with a child rather than just giving some symptom relief. So if a child presents with constipation, yes, of course, we're going to say, okay, they need more fibre, they need more fluid but then going back a stage to say is there an underlying cause to that so that's really where it helped me wow so so Vanessa, just so everyone's clear you work in london i do yes. and you work as a community pediatrician so yes. you're not in the hospital no we're not based in the hospital you're out what, with people in their homes you're saying we're actually we are based in a child development center but my team, which consists of a dietitian, a fitness specialist and a family therapist, are able to go and visit families in their homes. So that's where they really get an understanding of how people live and what they're able to manage really day to day. Well, that, I mean, you know, just hearing that is incredible because you want sometimes the, the public health messaging that is given out 
it's quite didactic. It's it's overly simplistic some of the time. And I get Can that. Be, yes. I, I get sometimes, you know, for public health messaging, you know, people are trying to deliver a, a simple solution so that there's uptake in the general population. Right. Yeah. But often that, that simple solution isn't working for, for people. Yes. And actually something you just said really, really on one level deeply resonated with me. And I... Um, you know, I, I've, I've done some BBC documentaries before, mm-hmm. and in the last series of Doctor in the House, I I, I had a childhood obesity case, right. and it was in uh, a family's house in North London. Mm-hmm. And you know, these guys were trying to do what they thought they were meant to do. You know, mm. eat relatively healthily and be active. Yeah. And actually, this this young lad was doing that, despite that he was extremely overweight. But it was only by going into his house only by getting an understanding of the dynamics at home and yeah. you know taking that whole child approach was I able to get such fantastic results with him and I imagine that's a real opportunity for you guys when you can see children in their family environments is that right it really helps so obviously we only are only seeing a very small percentage we're seeing the children who are above a certain percentile of BMI and also who have another diagnosis. So they may have a learning difficulty or they may be diagnosed with autism or ADHD or there may be some other issues going on which mean that they aren't able to access other group approaches such as MEND, which is something which is going on um, countrywide. So they need much more of an individual approach and by seeing what's happening with them at home our team are able to then really pinpoint how to help them and how to support them. Can you give us or share with us any insights at all that, you know, when you or your team are in someone's house, how does that potentially alter the advice that you're giving to those families and if you were just seeing them in clinic? So first of all, we're able to have a look at their kitchens to see do they have good cooking facilities? Do they have ability to store things in cupboards? Do they have a fridge? That's that's a very first start. Then we're looking at whether there's any space indoors for the child to do any movement, any activity, just to see what are the dynamics. Is it a safe environment or are they at risk of hurting themselves if we're asking them to do some exercise indoors? Are they having to go up several flights of stairs to navigate? So if we're asking them to do a big shop of vegetables, they're then having to get them up the stairs. So there are lots of sort of practical issues which we can then give solutions around. So it's a lot more personalised. It is. Yeah, okay. And and this is something that is funded by the National Health Service. Yes, it is. Okay, so you've got this um, this project that the NHS are funding for people who, well, children who are above children. a certain BMI. Yeah. So is this sort of what category of obesity would you so say? So it's four to 12-year-olds to start with because it's a family approach rather than just looking at the child themselves. And we know that the family approach works much better for that age group. Can you just clarify for people listening, what do you mean when you say a family approach? So rather than focusing on just what should we do with the child, we're saying what can the family do together? How can they cook and eat together? How can they incorporate activity and movement into their day-to-day routine? Because as you know, everybody's busy. People really are limited on how much extra time they can um, give to doing activity. So if we can see what is their school run like, we can perhaps give advice on where they can add in some movement, some activity, maybe taking the long route round so that they're getting more steps in on the way or the way back. And rather than just um, saying, okay, you need to move 
this much every day. You're saying, this is what's practical for you. Let's start at this stage and then we can build on that. Yeah. I mean, something we said off air before we we got here today was that you found that actually making small changes consistently Correct. can often lead to the big outcomes and the, and the yes. big results. Can you just sort of expand on that? Rather than trying to incorporate a whole new eating plan and movement plan, if you just look at what the family are, are doing and saying, where can we capitalise? Where can we just improve or change a small thing so that that will then lead to further changes because small changes are more likely to be sustained and we know we see that happening every week because it's a bit more achievable isn't it, it for is. them so yeah. um what sorts of things might you ask them to do so for example um we had a child who had a very common habit of when they got on the bus with mum they would ask for some crisps or they would ask for some chocolate and so as parents do we sort of say okay you can have Chris, but it became quite a regular habit so that whenever they went on the bus, it was a reaction for him to say, give me crisps. And so we explored about what other things he liked and we found out that he loves carrots. So we said, why don't we have bus carrots? So mum had a little pot of carrots in her bag and we made it a big deal that he would go on the bus and have his bus carrots. So that was an example of a very small change, but a very positive change for them so that he's he's getting another another of his five a day in and he's not asking for the foods which are not helping him in the long term. Yeah, what's great about that is that he's already presumably and obviously I don't know the ins and outs of what was going on in, yeah. in that particular case, but you know, as you say, we're often conditioned to having certain treats or certain things in certain yeah. situations. So, you know, he's on the bus with mummy, that's yeah. his time to get his treats. Correct. And so you're using that, you're you're keeping that framework there. Mm. But you're just tweaking it. So when he's having that treat, he's having bus carrots and yeah. he likes carrots. Absolutely. So, you know, I guess if we're talking about small changes leading to big outcomes, let's say he was taking the bus five times a week. Yes. Then instead of five packets of crisps, he's getting five replaced portions of carrots. And not only is he getting those carrots, he's not actually having those crisps either. Exactly. And, you know, that's a that's a much smaller thing than saying you've got to try and have... Um, five a day or seven yeah, a day. Yeah, it's just yeah. a small thing and meeting them where they're at. And, Absolutely. You know, that that is the thing that I think both of us as doctors realise the, the more patients we see is that the guidelines can be very useful, yeah. but we need the autonomy to be able to personalise those in the context of that patient in front of us and their families. It is, yeah. Yeah. So we have the opportunity to do that within our project. But as we said, it's a small project. But we can extend that to just taking these ideas and, and supporting other people in doing them. So it doesn't have to be a medical team that's doing it. It could be someone who's just supporting the family. So that would be an idea of how to spread this message to make it go further. And when we see that families make changes together... We also see that the benefits are that often the parents are improving their health as well. And that can only have a good effect for the child. So parents often do reduce their weight when their child comes to our project. And they're feeling much better. They're looking much better. They can't say, you know, much more than that, that they're so happy. Their child is happy and they're happy. Yeah, that's it's I love this whole family approach because you know, whether we're talking about adults or children, but particularly children, I'd guess, it's very hard to make 
behavioural change in isolation. Yeah. Uh, and when I'm dealing with adult patients, I often say, look, let's say, the, let's say the mother is in with me for something and yeah. I want them to make some changes. If the husband's not on board or their partner's not on board, actually, you know what? If you're trying to eat a healthy salad in the evening, yet your partner's got some chips or a yeah. donut, it's going to be very limited it's, how it's far hard. you can go. And the, the other thing I've learned from being a parent now for seven years is children's children generally, I I feel, respond to what they see you actually do, not they what do. you tell them to do. Yeah. So, you know, for many of us as parents, if we want our children to adopt healthier habits, then actually we need to adopt healthier habits and actually model that behaviour in front of them. And I know it's, you know, I'm not preaching, I get it's hard. Yeah. You know, it can be very challenging for some people. Um, but that's certainly something that me as a, as a father we very much prioritise involving our kids in the conversation about food, yeah. in the chopping of Absolutely. vegetables. Yeah. You know, my, my daughter's just turned five, mm-hmm. but she's chopping mushrooms for us, you know, right. several times a week. Um, I think actually, you know, there's an argument, you know, at what age are they safe to use a knife? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I don't know, you know, I mean, in the context of my own home, I kind of feel that, you know, children are pretty smart. You know, you teach them, they learn pretty quickly. They can they do. do this stuff. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know. What, so, what do you do as a mother? Well, definitely what we do is, and what they see is what they become. So children become their parents. We become our parents. We know that. And it's it's what they're being exposed to in the home environment is what they're seeing. And particularly in the first few years of life, that's all they're seeing. So whatever you're doing, they're watching you. Be careful. Whatever we, it's true. It whatever is really we true. say, they copy. They use our words. They copy our actions. So it is really important for us to think, are we spending a lot of time on our phone while we're eating? Because that's what we're going to be showing our children. That, that is, for me, that is an absolute cast iron, don't break rule at home. At the dinner table, yeah. no one's on their phone. That's good. Like myself is not, my wife's not, and, and I'm... In fact, it winds me up if people who are on their their phone at my dinner table uh, around because I just, you know, rightly or wrongly, I'm trying to protect my kids from that. Yeah. I don't know if I'm, you know, as parents, we're all trying to do the best that we can, we right? We don't. I don't know if this will result in the outcome that I want. <laughs> I, I really don't know, but. Well, every parent just wants a healthy and happy child. At the end of the day, that is our first wish for our children and if we realize that what we're doing and what we're showing them is having such a huge effect then that will change how they respond to us and how they respond to the world yeah so we're teaching them how to respond to cues as well yeah absolutely i wonder as part of this project that you're involved with vanita are you seeing families from you know, poorer families and from lower socioeconomic groups. Is that fair to say? It is fair to say. So in the area that I work, which is Lambeth, we have a hugely diverse population and there are large areas of deprivation. So we're seeing families who are facing financial issues, social issues, and they're not able to come out from that so easily. So by supporting them through that, we're actually helping them in many more ways rather than just with the health of their child. Yeah, absolutely. Is, is your approach for those families different from more affluent families? I wouldn't necessarily say so. It may be that we need to make more home visits for those families because it's hard for them to actually even come to a clinic. But the 
approach and the advice is actually quite similar. Yes, with more affluent families, they have um, more access to things. So we're just pointing them in the direction of perhaps your child would enjoy doing this after school club. Whereas for other families, they may not be able to afford the after school club. So in that way, we're slightly different in that we're just pointing and directing people. But for the families who are able to, yes, they can access things. But for the families who aren't, there are lots of things they can access for free. So we're lucky in our borough that where they can do that. So, Vanessa, we're here in 2018. And the last time I checked the statistics, one in five children, uh, when they start primary school, yes. are either overweight or obese. Mm-hmm. And by the time they leave primary to start secondary school at the age of 11, yeah. one in three are either overweight or obese. Now, that is shocking that is worrying can we beat the childhood obesity epidemic it it certainly needs a long-term approach and that's what's been missing to date and it is very difficult to have a public health approach which works for everyone however there are so many fantastic projects which are running which individually if they came together would actually create a sustained and long-term benefit for all of these types of families so so possible but we need a longer term strategy and support the projects which are already running so there are lots of small individual voluntary agencies and um, charities which are doing such great work with children there are community kitchens where they're inviting families to come and cook and to learn basic recipes however they're all struggling financially And so just by supporting them, giving them that boost, we will be able to help so many more families. People hear health messaging all the time on the news, on the radio. Um, What what is the the difficulty in actually hearing that messaging and converting it into action? Uh, You know, what do you commonly see? Yeah. So often people know what they should be doing, but it's the translation of that into behavioural change, which is where the barriers are. And the barriers could be all sorts of different barriers. It could be just a practical barrier that they don't actually know what does that translate to having on my plate. So just by showing them a very simple plate of how the proportions of vegetables and fruits should be to other foods, that can help a family transform their diet. The other barrier I find is that parent we're we're much more used to seeing children with a larger BMI so parents aren't actually aware that their child is of a higher weight and I think research has showed that about 50% of children above the 91st centile their mothers or fathers thought that they were a healthy weight so we're so used to seeing children of a different demographic and weight. Is, is that partly because society has well is changing and we have you know, more overweight and obese adults and children, that therefore our perception of what is normal might be shifting as well. So a lot of these parents are seeing their children and they're not realising, they're not consciously registering that actually my child is overweight or obese. Yeah, I think that's true. We know that a lot of shifts have been happening over the last few decades. And one of them is that people are growing much bigger. We, We know that height is also going up. And so our shift to seeing what's normal has changed as well. And it's a case of just reminding ourselves that there are 
consequences if we allow that to continue in children because there is a window of opportunity for helping them and then reducing the likelihood of complications. One of the difficulties that often gets spoken about is if a child is overweight or obese, is it difficult as a healthcare professional to bring that up with a family? Are there you know, are, are there issues there? Because we've been conditioned with the media for, for many years now to yeah. to think that obesity is a, is a blame issue. It's a yes. lack of willpower when yeah. we, it's clearly not the case. Um, and so, you know, is that a challenge? You know, how do you bring that up with a family in a, in a very productive and constructive way? Yeah. So it's obviously a sensitive issue. And what we do is we, rather than focusing on weight, we focus on the child's overall health. Are they fit? Are they happy? Do they have energy? And so looking at the whole child rather than just focusing on weight, are they able to go to school or are there issues meaning they're bullied at school and they're not wanting to attend school? And so rather than looking at just weight, we're looking at all the aspects of the child. And so Parents do want their children to be happy. They want them to learn. They want them to be able to enjoy life. And rather than talking about weight, that's where we can actually get them on board. I mean, I think that every single parent wants the best for their child within their capabilities, within their life, within their, you know, their jobs. And, you know, everyone's trying to do the best that they can. And I think how we bring this up with people... Uh, makes a huge difference. It certainly does. Because, yeah. you know, ultimately I think parents would welcome the help if they it's do. done in a kind, compassionate and, and helpful way yes. rather than someone being told off for what they're not doing with their child. Exactly. And you mentioned bullying there as, as one thing. I mean, if a child is being bullied at school mm. and they've got that emotional pain to be dealing with, yes. you know, like just the same with adults. Often exactly we turn same. to food they do, yeah. to sort of numb and, and feed that emotional pain. Yeah. And, you know, just telling that child that five a day is really important. It's not going to uh, You know, it's just going to almost be on deaf ears, right? Because yes. the food is serving a different role. That's right. So the family therapist is able to really explore that with the family and to help the child build their self-esteem build their confidence and from that platform we can then work on the other aspects so the physical and the dietary aspects yeah fantastic it's so great to hear that these sort of projects are out there and are being funded by the national health service which is, which is brilliant yeah but i know you've also got uh, an expertise in gut health mm-hmm. and you know how does the importance of gut health play into your role as a community paediatrician who's trying to help children with weight issues? So we do see children who have um, gastrointestinal problems. So I mentioned constipation. They may have non-specific stomach aches um, or other vague symptoms, just feeling sick at certain times of the day. And that can affect what they're eating, when they're eating. And so rather than um, just giving them an uh, anti-sickness tablet or giving them um, lactulose or treatment for constipation, it's always good if we can look at how we can support their diet to improve the gut microbiome or their gut health overall. And has that changed since before you did nutritional therapy and after you've done nutritional therapy? So that same child, before you had 
the knowledge that you gleaned on that course, would you have treated those problems a different way, do you think? I think I probably would. I would have talked about increasing their water intake, increasing fibre intake. But I think I would also have relied on some medication. And now being able to offer many other modalities rather than just medication, it's so helpful for families to not have to rely on it. Yeah, it's, it's helpful. It's also very rewarding as a... As a healthcare professional, mm. I think if we can, if we've got that bigger toolbox, we can try and figure out what is causing this yeah. constipation issue, rather than giving a, you know, a, um, a, a you know, like lactulose liquid, yeah. let's say, to, yeah. to help that person you know, sort of go to the toilet. If we can actually prevent and get rid of the problem in the first place, yeah. it's much more satisfying. And one thing I have noticed over the past few years, and again, until I, until I sort of went out with my medical training to get more knowledge. I don't think I was quite as aware of this, but often it's not only, you know, what you put into the diet, it's also what you can take out sometimes. And I see a lot of patients, particularly um, when I'm seeing patients of different ethnicities, and it's not uncommon to see people who, let's say, don't tolerate dairy very well, Mm. but they've never considered a trial without. Mm. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes... I've seen constipation issues completely resolve when, you know, a, a child eliminates dairy for a period so of time. And then, yeah. you know, clearly at that point, then they can have a conversation with a nutritional professional if necessary mm. to work out how they can go forward with their diet if it doesn't contain dairy. Yes. Um, but, you know, certainly for me, that was a big change uh, from, you know, my conventional medical training. Yeah. But then before I sort of went out with to get some more skills. Yeah. The, the barrier to changing children's diet is that children can be fussy about what they want to eat and they can have quite a limited number of foods and that's a really big difficulty for parents. So we're sitting here saying you have to eat this number of vegetables but their child isn't even eating one vegetable. So what we can do is then explain and support parents into how to very, very gradually increase that. And it's all about very tiny exposures and doing it often. The actual window of opportunity for children to get their food taste preference is very, very early. And I think that we didn't know this until recently, how early. So most people wean at around six months. And the traditional foods to wean used to be some baby rice and some fruit. And then we now realise that actually this is the time where we need to be introducing other tastes rather than the sweeter tastes. So we should be actually offering a really wide variety of vegetables at that stage. And that will mean it is more likely later on that they're not going to have this fussy eater issue. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think for people listening, if they have got... Uh, young babies or someone's yeah. pregnant and you know you're thinking that this is going to be relevant for you mm. I think that's really important early on to, to expose your child to as many different flavours as possible yeah. and the other thing is is that often they don't like it first time but no. I've read some some really good research that said you have to get it at least maybe seven or seven or eight times eight times yeah. before that taste starts registering that's right. so it's about patience and perseverance you just have to keep offering it And this can be done at any age, but it just takes a lot longer in an older child. So by doing it at much earlier age, it's actually a very short time, six months, if you like, where you can get those taste preferences and increase them. Yeah, I think what's what's really interesting about what you're saying, Vanessa, at the moment is 
I think sometimes uh, we can, many of us, depending on you know what world we live in and what social media world we inhabit. Correct. You know, we think that it's normal to have these plates full of colourful, vibrant mm -hmm. uh, plant foods and vegetables. <laughs> um, uh, but actually, for some families, you know, you're saying moving from zero mm. fruit and veg a day to one yeah. is a big shift. Have you got any sort of strategies for people that if 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 any mothers are listening to this or any fathers yeah. uh, or, you know, anyone who, who interacts with children and they are struggling to get their children to actually eat some colourful fruit and veg. Yeah. Do you have any, any tips at all? So first of all, as we talked about before, leading by example. So if they see you eating things, even from a very young age, that does influence their choices. And also what's available in the home. So if there are fruit available ready for them to eat and there are no other foods available, such as crisps or biscuits then obviously they're going to make that choice more easily. So it's about making choices for children much more easy rather than making it a difficult choice. And we all suffer from decision fatigue after a while when we're offered a cake and then we're offered it again. The third and fourth time, we definitely will eat that cake. However, if there's no cake in the house, we're not, probably not even going to think about the cake. So it's by having your home environment to make it easier for them to say, OK, I'm going to have this healthy snack rather than going for something which is not going to be healthy in the long run. Yeah, Vanessa, I think that's a great tip. And I know we're talking because of your speciality about children. This applies to adults. It really does. It applies to everyone. Yeah. Um, and what I often say to people is control the environment you can control. Yes. Because, you know, there's as soon as you step outside the front door, there's temptation everywhere these days. Yeah, so I, I, I say if you're really serious about making behavioural change... Um, try and make your house a safe zone. Yeah. <laughs> and one thing we've started doing at home, when I say we, my wife and I, mm. is you know, when the kids come home after school and they want a snack, uh, what I've started doing is keeping out colourful fruit and veg mm -hmm. on the counter. So they're yeah. walking past it, they're seeing it. Yeah. So, you know, if they're hungry, if they're genuinely hungry, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is, that's a, that's a separate issue. <laughs> Actually, if there isn't anything else and that's there, ultimately, you know, you do that day after day, that's what they're going to have. That's right. And that's what they'll then start getting used to having. Um, yes. the other if you ask most parents, when is your child most hungry? It's at the end of school. So between finishing school and getting home, that's when they're the most hungry. So depending on your school run, how you're picking them up, have those healthy snacks with you and offer them first. That They are actually going to eat them at that stage because they're so hungry. And then later on, they'll have less hunger for the other foods. And it could be that you're in the car, it could be that you're on the bus, as we talked about, or it could be that when you get home, the first thing they're eating, as you said, are those healthier options. Yeah, that's a, that's a great tip. Do you find that some families say to you and your team, look, we want to make ch healthy food choices, but, you know, I, I send my kids to school and there's all this junk available at school and mm -hmm. actually there's only so much I can do because that's what they've been exposed to and that's what they want. Is that something that your team hear much about? We do hear parents talking about school as being one of the main areas where they can't really control. And so what we say to them is actually that's only five meals out of your week. So you're having three meals a day. 
if you're having one of them at lunch at school and they may be having a main meal, a hot meal, followed by a pudding, that's actually probably okay. And schools are trying as hard as they can within their resources to offer healthier main meals at lunchtime. And so you'll probably find if you look at menus across the country, they are changing, they are improving. And that one meal, if they're eating a certain amount of sugar at that stage, it's actually probably going to fuel them for the rest of the afternoon, particularly if they're doing something like sports. So we shouldn't get too worried or worked up about what they're having at school. Yes, it changes once they become a certain age. So once they're past 11 and they go into secondary school, that's a whole other ball game because they have their own choices, they have their own money and they have access to eating all sorts of foods depending on where their school is and what their school offers. So we're talking about the primary age children where families and parents have a lot more influence. Yeah, Vanessa, that, it's a really interesting perspective and I think it's very important for us to remember that, that you know, you're there in the trenches working with... Uh, children with, um, you know, children who are wanting help with their weight, and they might have some quite challenging circumstances around that. And it's about making pragmatic choices for these people and actually putting things in perspective. Yeah. You know, yes, of course, we'd love every child in this country to have a home cooked meal with healthy, nutritious ingredients three yes. times a day, but culture and society is not allowing that, and it and it's not likely to anytime soon. Mm. So just hearing you say that, well, actually, that's only five meals mm. out of what potentially 21 meals a week absolutely you know that that's a really good perspective and a, quite a refreshing perspective to hear yeah the other thing that we focus on um, is breakfast so many children say they're not hungry in the morning or they have to get up and it's too early or they don't have time but we really reinforce the fact that if they're having a, a decent breakfast at home they're not going to then feel hungry at break time and then be looking for high sugar foods um, and they're also going to have a better balance of their blood sugar through the day. And most children that we speak to would be having a bowl of cereal with milk. That's a fairly standard breakfast or some toast. But just by making a tweak to that and saying, can we add some fruit in or can we change the toast to being a scrambled egg with toast? then you're increasing the protein, you're increasing the nutrient content of that breakfast. And then obviously you can build on that further. So it's about just supporting parents to make those changes and showing them that it may not take that much more time. And they actually do respond very well when we help them understand. Yeah, so really about meeting people where they're at. It is. Actually seeing, well, what is, what is the breakfast that your child is having already and how can I subtly change that mm. rather than trying to overhaul everything Absolutely. and of course some families will be very receptive to they a complete will. overhaul and they'll yeah. have the time and the energy to put behind interest. that yep. but you know i think that's what i'm enjoying most about this conversation Vanessa, is that you know we can't assume that everybody has the same life situation the the same access mm. and ultimately we need to tweak things for for those people and, yeah. and actually alter the advice that we give. Yeah, It's finding what works. Every family works in a different way. We have our own routines, we have our own preferences and it's about just working with those and building on them. Are you surprised by, you know, let's say you go through the sugar content of some cereals with mm. your families that you're talking with yeah. 
do you find that some of them are quite shocked with how much sugar is in their healthy breakfast cereals? Yeah. So we our dietitian works with the family to help them read labels. And that is one of the things which they often say is that we didn't realise we thought this was a healthy cereal. But well, in fact, we're not doing our children any favours by giving them this. And that, that's the crux of the matter, isn't it? Yeah. There is this hidden um, sugar content mm. in so much of the processed food that we're now eating. And as we both sort of said, is that we generally believe that most parents are trying to do the best that they can for their children. Mm. And once they understand what's in those cereals, often actually they don't want to give it anymore no. once they understand what's in it. Absolutely. And marketing is very clever so that a lot of foods will come across as very healthy. And when you're in a rush, you're rushing up and down the supermarket, you just grab what you're used to grabbing and you think it's healthy without realising that actually there's a lot of uncovered sugars in there. Yeah, absolutely. Is there any... So that, I mean, so that's one thing that, you know, surprises you, but how... I don't know, it's tricky. You, you know, you, we see all these big... Uh, media headlines and these articles that get shared lots on social media Mm. and I think some of us can start making the assumption that everyone knows this stuff but you're out there in the trenches and you're actually realising that actually that information has not got to where it needs to get to I mean it's still we've still got a long way to go to educate as many families as possible about what they can do to improve their their overall health Well I think there certainly is a place for the social media and the groups who are um, linked into these. Oh, no question. Yeah. However, I think that this can work by them spreading their message further. So someone who has this knowledge could then take it to a wider audience. And that's where we can really help these families. Yeah, absolutely. Have you seen a significant change in the way that childhood obesity is being tackled now in 2018 compared to when you started your career about 20 years ago? Well, there certainly seems to be an acceleration in a focus on childhood obesity. I think we may be looking at the um, US and saying that we don't want our population to follow. And so there's certainly been a lot more talk, a lot more media coverage and, and government input as well. So Public Health England are trying different campaigns to help people who may not understand some basic principles but there's always going to be controversies around what you tell the whole country to do because you can't have one size fits all so yes we can take that message and then work it for those people and see how can it work on an individual situation rather than saying everybody has to do the same thing sure so Vanessa look what I try and give my listeners in this podcast is some simple, actionable, achievable tips that they can apply in their own life, hopefully immediately. You know, do you have four top tips that you can give the listeners in terms of what they can do in the context of their children and their families Mm -hmm. in terms of how to improve their health? Yes, I would say that um, there are sort of four things which I could group together, which help children to increase how much they're eating in terms of vegetables and how they're getting involved with cooking. So first of all, engaging your child. So let them 
play with the vegetables, let them wash the vegetables, let them be involved in cutting when they're at a developmental age that they can do that. And by um, exposing them to all different vegetables. So trying something new that you haven't tried before, bringing it home, allowing everybody to taste it and keep repeating that so that it's not an unusual thing to have something new on the table. Um, And then we talked before about leading by example. So you need to be the example for your children And even when they're teenagers, they are still watching and looking. So just be aware of that. I've got all that to come. You have, yes. I'm already there. And then lastly, just to enjoy doing things with your child, being enthusiastic, getting some movement through playing, um, you know, connecting them with them when you're cooking, all of those opportunities. It doesn't have to be a whole hour taken out of your time. You could be doing something else like walking to the shops, take them along with you, make it an exciting thing for them, a route where they're going to get some activity done. And so those are the sort of areas which I think that people can focus on. Vanessa, thank you for that. That's that's incredibly useful. Look, I've, I'm so happy that you've managed to spare some of your time to come onto the podcast today to share your, your expertise in this area. Um, thank you. If people want to stay in touch with what you're doing i know you've got some big plans and you're you're helping you know talk about wider strategies in terms of how we can really make a an impact on childhood obesity how Mm. can they stay in touch with you so i am on um, social media myself and it's at health via nutrition okay and um, people can contact me through there Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for your time. I wish you all the best with your work going forward and hope to have you back on the podcast soon. Thank you very much. That's the end of this week's Feel Better, Live More podcast. Thank you so much for listening and I really hope you found the conversation useful but also enjoyable. If you're not already, I'd highly recommend that you subscribe to this podcast so that you can be notified when the latest episode of my podcast comes out. I'd also be incredibly grateful if you consider going onto iTunes and giving this a five-star rating so that I can get this information out and reach more people. It really does make a difference. And if you have any suggestions for people you'd like to see me have conversations with on this podcast, I'd encourage you to get in touch with me on social media using the hashtag #FeelBetterLiveMore. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram using the handle at Dr Chatterjee and on Twitter using the handle at Dr Chatterjee UK.